song of our lips would be a prayer, Lord, deep within our heart, that, Father, we would give of ourselves to you for your desires and your will. And I pray, Father, that we would be submitted to that will. For those purposes, once again, Father, we gather together to open your word, to, again, finish the previous week off well, but to start the new week well also. And so, Father, just speak to us and guide us once more through your word. Make it applicable and accessible to our lives that we would honor you, Lord, in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor. Greedy neighbors over there. And the guy in the back, too. The old guy in the back. <laughs> what? Yeah. You never know. Greetings. Donna. <clears throat> Hi, Tina. How are you? And Linda, I heard Linda there. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings. We're in chapter 3. We're going to see through this confederation of kings how we are to move forward in ministry and the things that the Lord has called us to do. Unfortunately, so many times in the scriptures we see the wrong way and we mimic that way. O Lord, that we would see the proper way and follow the leading that you have set forth. In case you haven't been with us on Sunday evening in our introduction, we saw that the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom is split. It happened after Solomon died in the reign of his son Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a man who was pretty hard-hearted. He took the advice of the foolish rather than the wise, and it caused a split in the kingdom. There was a man that the Lord raised up. His name was Jeroboam. It's important to know that Jeroboam and Rehoboam are no relation. They just have similar-sounding names. Anyway, Jeroboam, he established the northern kingdom with the ten tribes, with ten tribes of Israel. Now, he was concerned since Jerusalem and the temple was in the southern kingdom, he was concerned with his people going down there to worship and then staying down there, so he instituted a false system of worship in the northern kingdom that consisted of a golden calf. When I was in Israel, we went to Tel Dan. Tel Dan is one of the northernmost sections of Israel, and we saw one of the places of that worship of the false god. And so we're going to be looking at elements of this today. So just keep in mind, there were the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. That was called Israel. There was the southern kingdom, consisted of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, which is called the kingdom of Judah. So during this time in the northern kingdom, King Ahab and his son Ahaziah, they're both dead. King Ahab's wife and Ahaziah's mother, Queen Jezebel, she's still around and she's still exercising bad influence. Ahaziah had no son upon his death, so his brother, and this is the man we'll be looking at tonight, Jehoram, he assumes the throne. He is a man who we're going to see has a fear of God, but he has no heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord. As we saw last week, the mantle of the prophet, God's mouthpiece, has been passed from Elijah to a man named Elisha. 
Elisha will now be God's avenue through to the heart of this northern king, Jehoram. Now in the southern kingdom, the man seated upon the throne there is King Jehoshaphat. We've talked about him previously. He'll be there for a little while longer. Jehoshaphat is considered to be a king who did what was right in the sight of God. But he had this nagging problem. He continued to ally himself with the northern king. And I think he had good intentions, but you have to recognize who it is who you ally yourself with. And as that happened, that added to some of the failures in his life. So again, here's a man who seeks after the Lord, but as we all are, he's imperfect and does some of the things that are contrary to God's word. His main problem, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. And so he kept company with some of those kings of the north and also keeping in mind that his son married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And so there was that alliance. It was more than likely alliance for peace And so when you would have a king that you would make such an alliance when it was time to go to war or other issues, you would call upon that king to ally himself with you. And so really Jehoshaphat's problem started very early when he gave of his son and gave of his fellowship to those who were contrary to God. And so here we have this man, Jehoram. Jehoram does have an element of wisdom here. Not godly wisdom, but he, he, there's, well, first point we're going to see is an attempt. He's making an attempt based upon what he had seen with his father and his brother. Attempt, real, really just to kind of cover his bases. It's kind of what we see the world or maybe even people that enter into the church. They haven't entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ but they'll enter into religion. And really what they're doing is is just making an attempt just in case. Well, keep in mind that this man Jehoram, his father has died and his brother has died according to the prophecies of the Lord. So he's wanting to avoid that. So let's look at the first three verses. Verse 1, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria. Samaria would be the capital. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father. So he still did evil in the sight of the Lord, but, well, you see the difference. But not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that is, or that his father made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, Remember Jeroboam, he would be, if you will, the founding father of that northern kingdom, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. And so again, the attempt here is for Jeroboam to cover his spiritual bases. And as I started to say, we can experience people who do that. I used to do it. I used to do it in my past religious experience, attending church that hour a week because I thought I was buying some sort of favor with God. And so you'll have people that attend church and thinking that they're earning something there. You'll have people that will put money in the offering thinking that they're buying something there. You'll even have people serve thinking that they're earning something in the sight of the Lord. 
but unfortunately they persist in the sins of their father. And the one sin of our fathers, the people before us, that is detrimental to all of this is a lack of faith, no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why Jesus said, you must be born again, because whatever good that we're able to do is never going to be good enough in the sight of the Lord. And so I would imagine this man, Jehoram, he's coming to the realization that he's got responsibilities and he's seen what has happened before. He saw what happened to his, his brother and his father and he recognized their weaknesses. And so Jehoram would be aware of God's feeling towards Baal. I'm sure he was well aware of what happened in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah stood in the gap against the prophets of Baal. It was on that day that God emerged victorious on Mount Carmel and 450 of Baal's prophets died that year or that, at that event. Later on, Elijah again would prophesy the death of his dad, Ahab, and then again his brother, Ahaziah. And the thing about it is, when somebody foretells something like that, and then it comes true, it gets your attention. Well, that's just the dynamic of who we are. That's why, again, we study the prophecies of God. That's why we look at Old Testament scriptures such as 2 Kings that we would get an idea of how God ministers to and relates to his people and relate it to us today. Look at the prophecies and see that the prophecies that came true before us, well, the ones that are going to been given to us that God has said in time prophecy specifically that those are going to come to pass as well. So... For the sake of prosperity, Jehoram, he oust the idols of Baal after, or out of the land, but the problem is he keeps the idols of Jeroboam. So again, the idols of Jeroboam were the same ones as Aaron, if you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Now, you have to understand, now he's not worshiping some, bear with me, some false calf god, so to speak, they have just proclaimed this to be Yahweh. They're using some means by which God has not only not prescribed, but commanded against to worship him. Their idea is to worship him, but they're worshiping him contrary to the word of God. And you can't do that. Matter of fact, it's impossible to properly worship God apart from how he is prescribed to do so. We'll see this today in our society as people say they'll have a relationship with God or they do worship God, but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Unless you have a relationship with Christ, there is no way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And so what he is doing here, and again, we can see it in people apart from Christ, this would be like an unbeliever turning from murder, but he keeps on stealing and thinking that he's a better person. Well, he may be a better person than he was, but he's still not good in God's sight. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he's speaking of the depravity of man, 
And he's looking at different areas. He's looking at the pagan. He's looking at the Jew. He's looking at a large swath of mankind. And he will come to his conclusion in Romans chapter 3 of all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as far as this good person concept, he even addresses it in Romans chapter 2 and verses 6 through 10. He's speaking of God and God bringing wrath and judgment. In verse 6 he says, Who, God, will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life. Now, notice that he brings up the concept. Now, he'll make clarification of that concept in chapter 3. But he brings up the concept of being right with God, having eternal life through being a good person. So he says, eternal life to those who by patient continuance, that means doing this all the time, it says patient continuance and doing good, seek for honor, glory, and immortality. And the idea is, this is a person who is as good as God and that good all the time. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Well, unfortunately, that speaks of all of mankind. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good or what is godly to the Jew first and to the Greek. But the problem is, and he'll state it later on, there's none good, no, not one. Well, we just finished the Way of the Master series. And when they asked people out on the street, if you died today, where is it that you would go? And a lot of them said they would go to heaven. And they said, and what do you base that upon? Well, I'm a good person. Well, the Bible's very emphatic about that. There are, no, there are none good, no, not one. Well, back in 2 Kings with Jehoram, we're seeing a fatal attempt at trying to be good. Well, we're going to see just really the heart of the man expressed in the verses to follow as we see now a campaign. Look at verses 4 through 5. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. At some point, Israel, the northern kingdom, either conquered Moab or made threats towards Moab, where Moab capitulated. They basically said, and this seems to be the deal that they made, I'll give you 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams every year if you either don't attack us or if you leave me in power and you leave our land. And so what was very common at the day, now keep in mind, now if you're a strong nation in that area, you only have so many people. So if you're going and conquering nation after nation, you don't have enough people to set up governments and authorities over that area. So really what you would do is you would either conquer a nation or threaten that nation, and you would put them under tribute. And so they would basically pay a ransom for you to go away, if you will, every year. And we'll see this concept. We saw it Thursday night in our study of uh, Jeremiah, and we'll see it as we go through Kings and Chronicles as well. Well, that is what has happened. Somewhere along the line, King Ahab defeated or at least threatened Moab and put Moab under tribute. But now that King Ahab is dead, and this was common as well, 
he's thinking his son's not going to be as strong, not nearly as powerful. So now he's refusing to pay what had been agreed upon to pay. And so what Jehoram is doing, he's coming up against Moab. His idea is, and more than, you know, this happened after his father died, so Ahaziah, he didn't do this. He didn't put it back in order. And so here we have Jehoram, he's putting it back in order. Verse 6, so King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. He put together an army is what that means. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. It's here that if I could talk to King Jehoshaphat, I'd ask him, dude, didn't you learn anything from the past? Maybe he wouldn't say dude, uh, king dude. But did you learn anything from the past? I mean, God says that to me a lot too. Did you learn in the past? We got to go through this again. He's probably said it to you a few times as well. But Jehoshaphat in the past, well, we're told in 1 Kings where he allied himself with King Ahab against Syria. And so you're going off to war. They just spoke to a prophet, and the prophet said that Ahab's going to die in this battle, and they're going to be conquered. But here Jehoshaphat, he goes anyway. And so he's going off into battle, and Ahab says, you dress up as the king. I'm going to be as a common uh, soldier. So they'll, they'll, and the idea is they'll go after you and not me. And Jehoshaphat is like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Well, the idea is you take the king out first. It's like, Jehoshaphat, they're going to be shooting at you. Well, they realized after they attacked at him, they made a move at him, they realized Jehoshaphat was an Ahab. Ahab was the one they were after randomly, but we know this is according to God's will. An archer shot an arrow and Ahab ended up dying. Jehoshaphat, though, because he aligned himself, allied himself with that king, with King Ahab, he had to flee for his life. So Jehoshaphat didn't work out too well. And then we referred to it, I believe it was last week or the week before, he went into a business venture with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. And all of the ships, before they even left their, their, their docking station, they were all destroyed. And so he lost all of his ships and more than likely a bundle of money as well. And now he's doing the very same thing with Jehoram. Here we go again. But really what we need to look at here in the lesson for us is notice how Jehoshaphat basically refers to Jehoram, basically referring to him as a brother. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses or my power as your power. And more than likely the idea is he's referring to him this way because they are both Jews and I would imagine in Jehoshaphat's mind we're all children of God. But again, you've got this man who is a Jew, claims to be, he seems like he's cleaning things up. He does recognize God, but he's not walking right with the Lord. Now, Paul gives us instruction in our Christian life in such things. Now, we are not to associate with the world. There's no doubt about that. But also, for somebody who claims to be a believer that is living a constant life contrary to God, refusing to repent, it's that person that we're not to have a relationship with either. Now, we don't become the spiritual police in this matter because there's not a one of us who is perfect. 
All of us, we sin, we stumble, we fall. But the idea is we repent and get right. So really what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians, this verse I'm about to quote, he's talking to an, uh, or talking about an unrepentant believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And so the idea here is, is that being the case, why would you go on in that sin? Why would you allow that sin back into the camp? Now, backing up into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, the same, same address, because I accidentally read the wrong scripture, and so I'm kind of trying to lead you over there without you knowing that. But in verse 9 of chapter 5, and the, the one I want to refer to is 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And so, okay, We don't keep company with sexual immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now, what he's saying here is, is that we don't, you know, become best friends with the world. We don't allow them positions of influence in our lives, but we enter into their lives in order to influence them for Christ. Because what they are doing... now. This can correlate with the list I just read in chapter 6 of all of those sins. They need to turn from that. And they need to know that they need to not only turn from that, they need to turn to Christ. And so we do need to have a relationship on that level. But verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 11, he clarifies, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. And so here's where Jehoshaphat is going wrong. And here's where we can go wrong as well. Anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? And he's basically saying those who are unbelievers, when they partake in those sins, they're just doing what an unbeliever does. He says, do you not judge those who are inside? And so, yeah, we, we do. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Well, this is where Jehoshaphat went wrong. He developed an alliance with this man. Well, the problem is, and the problem when we ignore sin, the problem when we allow sin to continue, and we even have fellowship with the sinner, a lot of the times when God's judgment comes upon that person, when some sort of correction comes into that person's life, it's going to affect us as well. And so we need to be of the mindset to keep things in proper perspective. Now, if we got a brother here who's sinning and unrepentant, we need to minister to that person. But it very well could come to the place where we need to ask this person to leave the fellowship. Now, the idea here is, if we ask him to leave the fellowship here, he'd probably bounce to another one somewhere else. But the idea is is that person is put outside of the body of Christ, as Paul will say later, for the buffeting of the flesh. That he would realize he's outside of the graces of God. Not that he's lost his salvation, but just outside of the blessing that the body of Christ is. That he would repent, get right with God, and come back. 
Now, there's a sinning believer here in 1 Corinthians. Later on in 2 Corinthians, God will see, or Paul will show us where that person has repented, come, came back, and now needs to be folded back into the body of Christ. And so, this is where Jehoshaphat went wrong. And again, he's constantly suffering because he makes these alliances. Verses 8 through 14. Then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. The wilderness of Edom would be east of Jerusalem, southeast of Jerusalem. It's more than likely that Edom, the commentator said, is under tribute to Judah, to the southern kingdom that Judah has control over that area. Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed. So the idea here is this is kind of a sneak attack. We're going to go around south and we're going to come up from the south. The problem is I've been in that area. It's all desert. It would be like if we were going from here to attack Las Vegas. Calvary Chapel, Ontario is going to attack Las Vegas. And so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go over the mountain range and we're going to go into that desert area. Well, keep in mind, this is a caravan with animals and people walking and you're going into that area. More than likely, it was a time of drought or the Lord just dried things up because the Lord's trying to grasp onto their hearts here. Anyway, they're having a hard time. There's no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel, verse 10, said, Alas! For the Lord has called these, uh, these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the kings of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Sabbath, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Poured water on the hands of Elijah or ministered to Elijah. He was Elijah's protege, if you will. But notice what the godly man, Jehoshaphat, making a mistake but still seeking after the Lord, he's telling them that in the midst of our hardship, we need to go to the Word of God. Now, they did have the written Word of God, but the written Word of God was very rare because it had to be copied by hand. Probably didn't have a field manual of the Word of God. Definitely didn't have Bibles like we did, and so they would use the prophet. So that's what Jehoshaphat is seeking after by asking for a prophet, the Word of God. Verse 12, And Jehoshaphat said, The Word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? So he's speaking to the king of Israel, Jehoram. What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your fathers, speaking of that false religious system, and the prophets of your mother, that would be uh, Baal. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. And so God is being gracious because of the presence of Jehoshaphat. And so the problem here is, is a problem that I see a lot of, and they've been experienced myself from time to time. Now, what are they doing? They're attacking they're in the wilderness, a problem comes up, and it's a problem of life or death, and now they're seeking out the Lord. Well, they got their priorities skewed here. 
See, it's all in the timing of the seeking. If they calmly sought out the Lord before they went, they would not be desperately seeking out the Lord now. How many times has that happened to you? You didn't really seek the Lord out before you went or before you did. And then in the midst of the trial, you're desperately seeking the Lord out where it would have been quite the opposite if before you went, before you did, you would have sought the Lord out and then you wouldn't have to do it in desperation later on. And even in the midst of ministry, so many times we'll put ministry together, we'll implement it, we'll get ready to do it, and then we'll pray about it. Now, it's got to start with prayer. These things have to start with prayer. I mean, if it starts with prayer, the Lord reveals what he's going to do. Probably as far as Jehoshaphat was concerned, God, I would imagine, would have revealed to him that you ought not to be aligning yourself with these people. I see Jesus set the example. So many times he was praying before uh, an event of notoriety. Probably the greatest was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying to such a degree that he was sweating blood. And really what it did is it confirmed the cross that was set before him. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. But you have to have that open means of communication with the Lord to understand where he wants to place your steps. Next, we have the prophecy in a siege, verses 15 through to verse 27. But now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now, there, you don't need a musician to prophesy, but the idea is, is just we understand. We understand the place and the importance of worship. I would imagine trudging through the wilderness, um, you're, you're, you're thirsty, and, and you've got all of these issues. You're amongst it. Let's just stop. Let's worship the Lord, and let's seek him out. Plenty of times there's prophecy without the musician. But I really believe that it's, let's get our hearts right before God. Let's just set our hearts right before the Lord, and, and then we'll seek him out. Now, you need to keep this in the back of your mind, because we're going to go to Second Chronicles, and I'm going to finish our study up over there. But just kind of keep that concept in the back of your mind. Verse 15, now bring me a musician that it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. And so he's going to send water here. And so really these are going to be holding places for the water that he's going to send. Verse 17, now and, and the size of the ditch and the depth of the ditch, that'll be determined by the faith of the digger. If you're dying of thirst and God says to dig a ditch, you think you'd dig a pretty big ditch, wouldn't you? So when God speaks to your heart, leave room for the blessing. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind. I mean, there's going to be no physical means by which this comes. Nor shall you see rain, <clears throat> yet the valley shall be filled with water so that your cattle and your animals may drink. I was reading a commentator where the guy says, well, you know, it's kind of like the flash floods that we experience here. It's probably raining up in the mountains or whatever, and, and we see that experience, you know, in, in uh, the Palm Desert and whatnot. All of a sudden, there's not a cloud in the sky. Well, the rain's going on over there, and then you get this flood that washes through. Is that what's happening here? It could, but this is just water from God. And I'm just kind of disappointed in this commentator who I respect. 
He's trying to think of a natural means by which this happened. Now, sometimes God uses the natural to do the supernatural, but the fact of the matter is this has come from God. Verse 17, For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Now he's adding this on as well. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hands. That's another thing to set in the back of your mind. The idea here is is that you are to emerge victorious over the Moabites. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. If you recall in Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time for casting stones and collecting stones. Collecting stones would be clearing off a plot of land in order to plant it. To cast stones or to fill a plot of land with stones is to render it useless, at least for a period of time. Verse 20, Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning. Now this is confusion that God is causing. And the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil." So when they had come to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them, and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of the water and cut down all the good trees, and they left the stones of Ker-Horesheth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break out through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Verse 27 is going to be a key here. Then he, this king of Moab, took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place and offered him, he made a human sacrifice, offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall and there was great indignation or great wrath against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Notice how God did what he said he was going to do, but Edom, Judah, and Israel did not do their part. Somewhere along the lines, even though they had promises from God, I'm going to provide water, I'm going to work this short-term miracle so that you understand I can work the long-term miracle of victory over Moab. And he told them that he was, they were to attack Moab and basically they were to wipe out Moab. But what happened? Well, it's the same thing in our Christian lives. We read of everything that God has done, all of the great things that God has done. And so all of those promises of the past, and I take the promises that I have today, and you'd think that we would walk in complete victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens? It gets hard sometimes. It gets really hard. And they see here the fierceness of this man. He sacrificed his own son. And apparently that sacrifice had an effect upon the people that they rose up and they fought even harder. And Israel 
the, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and Edom decided, you know what, it, it, it's too hard. Let's, let's go back. And they went back. And you think, well, really, they still got a victory. They got out of Dodge with their lives intact. It worked out, didn't it? Turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is an event that is in the future. It's going to come back on King Jehoshaphat. But the thing that we need to see about King Jehoshaphat, he learned his lesson, and that's the key. The key isn't in the mistake. The key is in the growth that is able to come from the mistake. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Keep in mind, first of all, first concept here, when you don't destroy what God has told you to destroy, it's going to come back on you. As a Christian, when God does instruct you, for instance, to give up drinking, get rid of everything. Don't put yourself in a place that you're going to be tempted because it's going to come back on you. When he's told you that unbeliever that you've been having a relationship with isn't of him, you need to get rid of it, then you need to end that relationship because if you don't, it's going to come back on you. Well, that's what's going to happen with Jehoshaphat here in chapter 20. Look at verse 1. It happened after this that the people of Moab, now not only is the sin there coming back on him, it's also, notice how it's increasing. He's allied himself with other people. Now it happened after that that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and the others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea from Syria and they are in Hazazah Tamar which is in Gede. Then Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim the fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So a couple of things that you need to see right off. First of all, what's the first thing that he does? It's stop, drop, and pray. He's learned his lesson because you know, for myself and a lot of us, okay, well, this is what we got to do. We got to muster all the military men that we can possibly muster. We got to start setting up the, and we'll start setting up the whole table here without praying at all. And what we'll do is we'll set it all up. Then we'll ask God to bless our human efforts. But what he's doing, he's learned the lesson. Now, very first thing that we're going to do here is we're going to seek the Lord. We're going to seek the Lord. And another thing that we're not going to do, I'm not going up north anymore to ask for help. I'm not going to ally myself with those people. He's done it three times, and he's learned his lesson. If God is for you, who can be against you? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody whatsoever. When God's on your side, you fight from a standpoint of victory. We're told in the same chapter, in Romans chapter 8, that we are more than conquerors. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? I mean, if either you're a conqueror or you're not. To be more than a conqueror is to fight from the standpoint of victory. And so the battles that we fight, we fight from the standpoint of already being victorious in these things. But the fact of the matter is where Israel, Edom, and, uh, and, and Judah failed back in Second Kings is it got hard and they gave up the fight. When it gets hard, we just need to dig in deeper, but we need to continue to push hard in the Lord. And so really what I see here is, is as this attack is coming, and there's another concept here, as this attack is coming, as I said, first thing he does is pray. 
for us, when the attack is coming into your life, is it entering into your prayer life or is your prayer life entering in when the attack comes? For the prayer life to enter in after the attack comes is to be ill-prepared for the attack. It's just like Daniel. When Daniel was before the lion den situation, what was he doing? He was praying. He had this constant habit of praying three times a day so that when trials entered into his life, they entered into a life that was prepared by prayer. And so as we are a people who are constantly praying and seeking the Lord out, and how much more so when we even hear of the appearance of the enemy, are we prepared to not just withstand the enemy, but also to overcome the enemy? And so really what we see in this prayer is, is that he involves all who is involved. He involved the people. He prays according to the promises and the power of God. And he prays recognizing the enemy's limitations. Let's look at verses 5 through 13. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. If you stand in the Lord you will be able to stand against anything that the enemy has to offer. Verse 6, And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? So again, it's not that he's reminding God. He's reminding himself and he's reminding the people. And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save." And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Do not nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah and their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. And so this is a group effort. In our household, prayer needs to be a group effort. As a parent, I don't need to tell, especially younger kids, but even you know, as they get older, I need to be wise as far as what I reveal to him, to them, or maybe how I reveal what I reveal to them. But nonetheless, as it is their household and their well-being, the whole home needs to be involved in the prayer. Again, use wisdom in that. You don't have to go into great detail. But when situations are going on, they need to be prayer warriors. The more prayer warriors that we have, the better off we are. And so because of time... What happens again? They go back to a prophet. They hear from the word of God, and their point of faith is in the word of God. We're told in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, I just want to read this last section. Notice how their faith is expressed in their manner of approach. Look at verse 20. So they arose early in the morning. Now, this is the day that they're going to withstand the enemy. 
They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. So once again, his prophet, the deliverer of the word of God. Do you believe in the word of God? Do you believe in the power and the promises of the word of God? It's when you have that belief that you are able to stand strong. Now, look at the effect that this had in Jehoshaphat as he's aligning his people for battle. Verse 21, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And so they approached the battle based upon God's promise and his mercy. Now, the army still went out into the battlefield, but God is going to bring the victory. But we see the king, the king believes what God is going to do based upon God's word. And what is he doing? You see that element of faith. He still sends the army. It's a necessity because God told them to do it. But what does he put out front? He puts the worship singers out, out front. Because you know what? We're going to go into this battle. I don't know exactly how it's going to end, but we're going to praise God. We're going to praise God before the battle. We're going to praise God as the battle's raging, and we're going to praise God afterwards. Because all that happens, happens according to the will of God. And so what I have to believe, and it's why I came over here in Second Chronicles, is to see the change that has come about King Jehoshaphat. He's understood the futility of putting his trust in these kings who have no desire whatsoever for the Lord. But he also realizes that the desire that he has for the Lord is sufficient for what God wants to do. The desire that you have for the Lord is sufficient for God's purposes in and through your life. And we have to understand that. We have to embrace that. It's when we embrace it that we know that if God is for us, then nobody's going to be able to effectively stand against us. We'll understand what it means to be more than conquerors in this life that seems, well, it seems as time if it's, well, trying to run us over. And so really what I want to close with here is just the end of Second Chronicles verses 27 through 30, and the end of 2 Kings, chapter 3, verse 27, both of these instances and how they ended up. 2 Chronicles, here is Jehoshaphat puts his trust in God and not man, chapter 20, verses 27 through 30, it says, Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord has made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet or at peace, for his God gave him rest all around. But previous, 2 Kings and that confederation of the misguided in chapter 3, verse 27, then he took, this is the king of Moab, he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. That's what the world does when it's faced with hardship. And there was great indignation against Israel, so they, those three kings, departed from him, the king of Moab, and returned to their own land. It got hard, they gave up, 
And again, when it gets hard and when you give up, you're just going to have to face the same thing down the road. We see this example in Jehoshaphat. Stay in prayer. If you're in prayer, then the hardships of your life enter into that prayer life and that preparation with God. Put your worship before you. Worshiping God, understanding that God is mighty and he's more powerful than anything that you'll ever face. What's the most, apart from God, what's the most powerful thing that is contrary to mankind? Death. And God has overcome death. He's given us life and he's given us abundant life and eternal life. And so it's in God that we put our trust. Our confidence needs to be in the Lord. Father, once again, we just thank you for these things written so long ago, but for our benefit today. And I pray, Father, as we see failure, that we would also recognize our failure. As we see victory, we would also recognize how we can have victory in you as well. And so, Lord, I just pray for those who have come out tonight. I pray that we would take these things with us into this coming week. I know there's people here today that's going to be, that are going to be facing hardships this week. I know there's going to be trials and tribulations. But Father, I just pray that it's that spirit of worship that would go before us. Even in this last worship song, Lord, I lift it up to you and I just pray that you would just give us a spirit of recognizing your place or your presence in this place tonight. And as we do, Father, I just pray, God, that we would have that last intimate time that carries through with us out of here and through the week to come. So, Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness and your graciousness that it would forever be upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Again, we're still taking sign-ups for a couple's retreat.